Hi there. Welcome to New Frontiers Church weekly message series. Thanks for joining us today. During a conference in the UK on different religions, theologians from around the world were debating if there are any beliefs that are unique to Christianity. Is it the incarnation? Well, other religions have versions of gods appearing in human form. Perhaps the resurrection? Again, other religions have accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's all the rumpus about, he asked. They explained their discussions about Christianity's uniqueness among the world religions. Lewis replied, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace, God's unmerited favour towards humankind. It's the exclusive means by which our sins are forgiven so that we might be restored in relationship with our Creator. It's the free gift of God's mercy, achieved through Christ's work on the cross and towards which we can contribute nothing. It was initiated through the most significant event in history. It's a symbol of humankind's total helplessness and of divine intervention. And the only proper response to it is acknowledgement of our complete unworthiness and entire dependence on God. Speaking of reformer Martin Luther's understanding of grace, David Steinmetz said, the gospel is not give me your virtue and I will crown it with grace, but despise your sin and I will shower you with mercy. We've come to the last of our series of messages of kingdom breakthrough in the book of Acts. And I'm excited today to have the opportunity to tell you the story of a kingdom breakthrough recorded by Luke in Acts 15 that has a direct and profound impact on each and every one of us watching this message today. It also affects every person we share the good news about Jesus with because it concerns the very nature of the gospel itself. Take a look with me at our text this morning. It's Acts 15 verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter's statement addressed a huge and contentious question facing the early church in Acts 15. One of which, as I've already implied, the church has continued to do battle with throughout history. Is faith in the grace of Jesus sufficient for our salvation? Or are there other things that we need to do as well in order to be justified before God? I'm sure many of you watching this are thinking, of course it's Jesus alone. I mean, that all got worked out with Luther and Calvin in the Reformation. We believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone, don't we? Well, just because we might think we might have nailed it doctrinally doesn't mean we really get its implications or act in ways that align with our doctrine. The temptation is always there for us to try to earn God's favour by standards we set, practices we think we need to follow and values we make ourselves live by in addition to trusting in God's grace. You see, trusting entirely in God's grace can be really difficult because it's actually a full frontal attack on our pride and human pride is a terrible monster. 
It demands that we are entitled to earn our justification and it requires that we judge others by our own self-righteous standards, practices and values. And it puts us in the awful place of undermining the completeness of Christ's work on the cross, of somehow believing that through our actions we can contribute to his redeeming work. This was a big deal for the early church and it's a big deal for us today. And there's a lot we can learn from the first big battle for grace captured by Luke. Let's take a look at the backstory here. We learn in Acts 13 that Paul and Barnabas had been set apart by the Holy Spirit to head out from the church in Antioch to share the good news about Jesus among their Jewish brethren in the surrounding towns and cities. The news spread quickly and many received Jesus, but Paul and Barnabas also faced tremendous persecution, not just from the pagans they encountered, but also from some of their Jewish brothers, who Luke tells us were jealous of their success. Dismayed by their treatment, Paul and Barnabas turned their attention to the Gentiles in the cities, who, when they heard the good news, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were apportioned to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. The Holy Spirit was at work. They could see God's command to Isaiah to be a light for the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth being worked out right in front of them. So when Paul and Barnabas returned to the church in Antioch, they couldn't wait to declare how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. However, in their absence, things had changed in Antioch. An influential group of Jewish believers from Judea had visited the church and were teaching that in order to be saved, it was necessary for the new Gentile believers to be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And by necessary, they didn't mean that these things were just expedient, but they were a required part of the process of salvation. Paul and Barnabas were incensed. In their absence, the gospel itself was being undermined in their home church. According to the teaching of these fellows from Jerusalem, Gentile believers in Jesus would have to meet the requirements of the law. A law that had proven impossible for the Jews themselves to bear. Paul and Barnabas would have none of it. They decided they needed to go to the source of the problem to get it sorted. So off to the Jerusalem church to visit the apostles and elders they went. They received a big welcome from the church in Jerusalem. The church loved their stories of God's saving work among the Gentiles. However, eventually some Jewish believers that were members of the Pharisee party rose up to say, whoa, these new Gentile believers need to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses. As you can imagine, this provoked a vigorous debate until Peter, recounting his own experience when the Holy Spirit filled the Gentile Cornelius and his family some 10 years earlier, declared to the gathered leaders, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, 
the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will be. Paul and Barnabas then told more stories of the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And finally, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, brought his judgment. My judgment is that we should not trouble these of the Gentiles who turn to the Lord, but we should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Everyone agreed with James, so they wrote to the church in Antioch explaining how they rejected the teaching of the Judaizers. The gospel of grace prevailed. The Antioch church received the news with great joy. They were happy to accommodate James's request to respect the traditions of the Jewish believers among them. After all, they didn't want to cause unnecessary offence, but they rejoiced that the gospel of grace was secure. Salvation is by faith through the grace of the Lord Jesus alone. The struggle for grace is as real today as it was for the early church and as it was for Luther in the Reformation. It's a struggle not just for the church doctrine, but for each and every one of us. Whenever we ask, is there something else that I need to do or be to be sure of God's approval? Our human nature so desperately wants to be loved and recognised for what we do for God. I've got three things that I would like to draw our attention to today. Firstly, every one of us is entirely dependent on God's mercy for our salvation. There is nothing we can do to earn it. Our good works count for nothing. Salvation is something only God can give. His grace is scandalous to the human mind. No one is considered any more able to earn God's favour than anyone else, no matter what they've done or achieved. No one is excluded from the reach of his grace, no matter what sins they have committed. God's grace is the most amazing, wonderful news we could ever receive, and no one is excluded from its reach. Jesus dismantled the ladder of hierarchy that had marked the way people were required to approach God. He invited defectives, sinners, aliens, and the unclean to God's banquet. And through the cross, he made that invitation open to everyone, no matter what they've done or where they've come from. The good news of the gospel is for us all. We are all included. If you don't know him today and you turn to him, he will receive you at his banquet table. Which brings me to my second point. Grace is a big deal. And while it is freely given, it is not cheap. It costs Jesus his life and it will cost you everything. Titus 2 says, 
The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness and devotion to God. While we look forward with a hope that one wonderful day when the glory of our great Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people. Jesus gave us his all to be our saviour. He did all that was necessary to redeem us from our sin and lawlessness. So the only response possible from someone that has really encountered his grace and mercy is repentance turning away from our former ways and allowing him to cleanse and change us, walking free in the power of the Holy Spirit from the bondages of sin to embrace the new life he has for us. Let me speak about repentance for a moment. Our culture doesn't do repentance and it certainly doesn't do forgiveness. The whole idea of needing to repent for something is looked at with abhorrence. And as for forgiveness, we live in a culture where recognising, acknowledging and addressing sin is sidestepped and excused or even made a virtue. Until it isn't. Until the prevailing culture decides that what we have said, done or even believed is something that breaks its rules or fails to align with what is acceptable to its ever-changing norms. At this point, there is no room for redress through repentance and forgiveness. Cultural miscreants are considered beyond redemption. The solution is ghosting or cancelling them. To impose on them a most extreme form of shame. To refuse to engage with them to the point of refusing to acknowledge their existence in the virtual and even in the real world. This isn't a new idea, by the way. When I was growing up, we used to call cutting someone off in this way, sending them to Coventry. A quaint British idiom with a somewhat sinister root. Apparently, back in the 1700s, King Charles II had to enact an act of parliament to deal with people who were rather dramatically cancelling those they believed to be lying. They were cutting out or disabling their tongues. They were putting out their eyes and slitting their noses or cutting off their lips, as the Act said. The Act was named the Coventry Act after Sir John Coventry, who had his nose slit to the bone by attackers. I'm not sure if unfriending someone on Facebook reaches quite the same level as this, but it does show us that while methods may have changed, human nature really hasn't. And oh my goodness, how utterly alien is this compared to God's gift of repentance. And yes, I said that right, his gift of repentance. Repentance isn't a punishment to endure. The Bible says it's a precious gift granted by God to enable us to be free from the burden of our guilt and shame. It's a core part of God's great grace exchange, our guilt and shame for his righteousness. We all sin, we all fall short. We might try and excuse ourselves or blame our circumstances or other people, but the Bible is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all need his grace. 
through repentance as we take ownership for our sins and confess them to our creator he forgives us and lifts the burden of them from us transferring it onto the shoulders of his son we're covered by his righteousness and through the holy spirit we receive power to live out this new life it's not about exposing us shaming us guilting us or condemning us the bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus on the cross jesus paid the price that was necessary to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf to make it possible for us to be forgiven and reconciled to god such costly grace can only come through repentance diedrich bonhoeffer said Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Grace is not cheap. God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. We should expect those who have fully embraced and discovered the grace of the Saviour will experience the beautiful fruit of repentance in their lives. We all need lots of help as we follow Jesus. That's why he sent us the Holy Spirit and why he puts us in the church family to work it out together. We can expect that as we follow him together, our lives will change to become more and more like our Saviour. My wife, Ray, tells a story of when she first became a Christian. Let's just say that before she was saved, Ray's life, like mine, was somewhat colourful. She and I met while students at university in the UK. Prior to becoming a Christian, such was Ray's reputation among the Christians on campus that on hearing the news of her becoming a believer, one girl, who did later become a really good friend of ours, exclaimed, Ray Bradfield has become a Christian? She can't have done. She's way too bad. This brings me to my third and final point. When we look at others, we need to remember that we're in right relationship with God entirely because of the grace of God. We have no standing before God outside of Jesus. We have no righteousness of our own and we have no right to count ourselves as better than anyone regardless of what they have done or where they've come from. Grace is the great leveller. Brothers and sisters, we need to be so careful we don't allow our prejudice, our cultural expectations or our sense of righteousness to exclude anyone that God is including. 
treating those who have not yet received his grace with contempt or disdaining those that are different from us or may think differently from us is an affront to God. Spurgeon said, if you are ever saved, you will have to be saved in the same way as those who have been permitted to plunge into the most outrageous sin. Your being restrained from over offences is a favour for you to be grateful, but not a virtue for you to trust in. Ascribe it to God's providential goodness, but do not wrap it about you as though it were your wedding garment. For if you do, your self-righteousness will be more dangerous to you than some men's open sins are to them. What non-biblical standards of conduct have we blended with our own authority and privilege that we use to determine if a person is worthy of our approval? What cultural or religious customs have we added to the gospel as requirements before people are viewed as being acceptable Christians? Let the Holy Spirit challenge us today and let's make sure we are fast to repent and change from those things we have used as barriers preventing others from experiencing the grace of God. How grateful we are that the Holy Spirit broke through the encroaching strain of legalism and ritual that threatened the message of the gospel of grace in the early church. Amazing grace, God's unmerited favour towards humankind, the exclusive means by which our sins are forgiven so that we might be restored in relationship with our Creator God. The free gift of God's mercy achieved through Christ's work on the cross and towards which we can contribute nothing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Mm -hmm.